0: Anna. Hello Anna. How are you? How are-
1: <laughs> I'm good, thanks. Ah, we've just become the same person. How are you? I'm good also. It's uh we're recording this on a Friday, so I'm so glad it's I know. Friday. Oh. Oh my god, it was a long week. Yeah, same. Is anything new with you? My brain is just like in Friday mode. <laughs> <laughs> Of like,
0: what is the next talking point? Uh, One would normally say. <laughs> I've been doing some interesting arts and crafts this week. Oh my god. Please tell me about it. Okay, so I was telling Anna earlier, in my office space, I. So, Anna and I have been to this place called Lady Yum Macaroons. And oh my God, their macaroons are so good. The macaroons are delicious. And it's this whimsical place. You walk in, they have a whole coffee and tea bar, all these colorful macaroons, and like these really colorful, fancy desserts. And they have like pink champagne. Oh, and the decor is just so whimsical and. It's so fun. They have random animal, faux animal print. They have like feathers and gold and pink, and it's just eclectic. But somehow it comes off as sophisticated.
1: I really like it. It kind of looks like uh, you've seen the movie The Aristocats, right, Hannah? Yes, I watched it a long time ago. All right, you should watch it again. Uh, Just because it's great. But B, it makes me think of the aesthetic of that movie. Yes. Like, it's very over-the-top and unabashedly feminine. Yes, absolutely. Um, Um, And and also, their macaroons are delicious.
0: So good. I can't wait to go back there one of these days. I miss it. Me too. But anyways, so it was my inspiration for decorating my office, and I call it whimsical grandeur. (laughs) I think it's going to look so good. So, Anna, I took an Ikea lamp. And you know those Ikea paper lantern lamps where they have a million holes yeah. on the paper lanterns? So, yeah, yeah, I could not believe this. I googled those like faux ostrich feather lamps, and I had no idea, but these lamps are 1000 to $3,000. Oh my
1: god. What, I'm sorry. I don't even know what that looks like. Did you just type in faux
0: ostrich lamp? Yeah, faux ostrich feather lamp.
1: I think ostrich feathers are really expensive.
0: It must be a real... Oh my god. And then it must be real ostrich feathers, but I don't think so because they're all pink, the ones that they have these Oh yeah, that's of. probably true. Oh, okay. A, they look so cool. B, they are so expensive. So expensive it blew my mind. But I remember seeing one at this Lady Macarons place and... I was like, what the heck? And then I looked at the pictures closely on Yelp (laughs) because I wasn't going through the Yelp photos of Lady Macaron to figure out how I wanted to decorate my place. And they definitely did a DIY of that lamp. So I decided to do a DIY mini lamp with my IKEA table lamp. And I ordered a bunch of fluffy faux ostrich feathers for like seven dollars a bag and then just started hot gluing. Oh my god. Did you finish it? Oh my gosh, I have to send you a picture. Um I finished I'm almost done. Uh and I'll send you a picture even in its like almost done state. It's hilarious so, to look at, but I'm I, I'm really happy.
1: I can't wait to see it. So I googled photos of these. They just look like hanging powder puffs.
0: Yes, actually that's a great description.
1: I love them. They're so pretty and fun.
0: They're just so fun. I think that's gonna look so fun
1: in your office. Um, thanks, Anna. I can't wait to see it.
0: Uh, it doesn't really look like any of the lamps you're seeing on Google. It's like a real intense right? spin-off.
1: D <laughs> I mean, that's fine. It's it's your artistic eye. Uh, but it was so fun and to just do that <laughs> this week. That sounds really cathartic. It was. How about you, Sometimes Anna? <laughs> just need to hot glue some stuff together. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, mine is not nearly as exciting as that. So I was listening to the classic boy band lfo do you remember them
0: no i don't i
1: am now so curious i want to go play a song okay they have a couple of hits but their main one is summer girls which i would say is a work of true lyrical genius <laughs> um but i got that stuck in my head hardcore and then i started listening to just like all of the other boy bands i like and then i was like oh i'm just gonna make a playlist so i very creatively called it the boys are back Oh my gosh, I love it. It's on Spotify. I'm going to follow you. <laughs> it is. Oh my God, I'll share it with you. Uh, and it's everything. I put anything. Any band that is all men, I call the boy band. So I also put in like the Bee Gees.
0: Nice. And the Beatles. I was going to ask if you put the Beatles in it.
1: <laughs> I did. I mean, a, they're. A, I would say they're the definition of a classic boy band. Heck yeah. But then it's also got like NSYNC and Backstreet McSly Boys. And <laughs> Backstreet Boys and Take That. I have always been more of a Backstreet Boys fan than NSYNC, personally.
0: Oh, yeah. I think my go-to song for the longest time, even through college, was I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys.
1: That should be everybody's go-to song. I'm pretty (laughs) sure it's The (laughs) Law. That and Party in the USA.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that, I have been working on this playlist and having a grand old time. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. It's so good when you have, like... You know, just a perfectly curated playlist that's just so easy to uh, play when you're on a long drive. Exactly. Or when I'm working. Yeah, exactly. And you're not like thinking about, oh, what do I want to find next?
1: Nope. So good. And yet it's also very nostalgic.
0: Yes. So, you know, that was my exciting thing. All the good feels. You You need the good feels right now.
1: You really do. You need some extra serotonin now and again. Yes.
0: All right. Do you want to get in this week's episode? Yeah, let's do it. But first, should we introduce ourselves? Yes, we should. I'm Anna. And I'm Henna, And this is But, but it, it Is, is Rocket, rocket Science. Science. All right, Hannah, what are we doing this week? So this week, we're talking about liquid rocket propellants. We did an episode a while back about solid rocket propellants, and we just wanted to do like a mini series on different types of rocket propellants. Um, and it's been a few episodes since we did that one. We're like, oh. Let's bring back another propellant to talk about. So that's what this episode's focus is. I'm excited. Bring it on. All right. So I'll go ahead and dive into the technical description, and then I'll turn it over to Anna for some cool history. Can't wait. All right. Rocket fuel comes in different forms, solid and liquid. So we previously dove into solid rocket propellants. If you want to learn more about them, check out episode 27. In this episode, we focus on liquid propellants. Before we get into the specifics of liquid propellants, let's discuss the basics. There are two parts to propellants. One is the fuel, and the other is either oxygen or an oxidizer. You need oxygen or an oxidizer to cause fuel to burn, and in turn generate the expanding gases that provide the rocket with thrust.
1: Yeah, so you know if you light a candle and then you cover it, the candle will go out because there's no oxygen to feed the flame? Exactly. The same thing goes with rockets, except it's like, such an intense environment, you actually need liquid oxygen.
0: Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what I was going to say next. Um, Typically, we use oxygen here on Earth for a burn, just like Anna described. When you look at a candle, it's consuming oxygen. However, in the vacuum of space, there is no oxygen. So that's why you have to carry an oxidizer with you to ignite the fuel. When fuel combusts, the oxidizer and fuel undergo a chemical reaction where the oxidizer strips the fuel of electrons. In a rocket, liquid fuel and liquid oxidizer are kept in separate tanks. They will flow through this network of pipes and valves until they arrive at the combustion chamber, where the liquid fuel and oxidizer will mix together, and after they are vaporized, they are ignited with a spark. I want to take a moment here to stress that liquid propellants that require a spark for ignition are called non-hypergolic propellants which is a subset of liquid propellants this spark is extremely important for non-hypergolic propellants you will not get the umph, the the thrust the exhaust power you need for this rocket without the spark if you are working with non-hypergolic propellants with no ignition or spark you just have a mix of fuel and oxidizer just hanging out
1: yeah you gotta you gotta burn it for anything to happen
0: <laughs> exactly And the spark is typically generated electrically using a high voltage electrical circuit to make a spark jump across a gap. And the spark is basically it's ionizing energy. So it's exposing whatever it's around that gap. In this situation, these vaporized propellants to the ionizing electrical energy that then kicks off the combustion process.
1: You can actually buy a rechargeable candle lighter. So it's cool because it's USB rechargeable and it's more friendly for the environment. And you can see it if you Google pictures of it. You can see these two little like prongs. I don't know. Prongs, thank you. I was like <laughs> arms. <laughs> In between them, when you turn it on, you'll get this it looks like a stream of electricity, but it's like a spark.
0: Yes. And that exactly. is how you would light your candle. They're pretty nifty. Like if you don't know what we're talking about, uh Google an image and you'll immediately understand what we're what we're uh referring to. Yeah.
1: They're really cool. If you're really into candles, would highly recommend. Mm -hmm. But it is the same. It is a much less. It's like the same system as a spark igniter on a rocket engine, except it is significantly smaller. Yes. And less complicated.
0: Yes. But same concept. Yeah, it's a a good. And I love that. It's a great example to create an image in your mind. Thank you. All right. Let's continue. So I just talked about non-hypergolic propellants. On the other hand, hypergolic propellants are also a type of liquid propellant that are toxic propellants, and they react violently upon contact. They do not need an ignition source. So contact as in with each other? Correct. So when an oxidizer and a hypergolic uh, fuel come together, they will combust.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And so then that can be dangerous because if they collide together by accident...
0: Yes, exactly. Or too soon. Yes. All right. So there have been thousands of types of liquid rocket propellants that have been experimented with over the years. I'm going to talk about the top three popular ones and one that is actually emerging in popularity. Before getting into the details of these different fuels, let's review a common aerospace vocabulary term, that being specific impulse, which is abbreviated as ISP. So Everybody's favorite. Yes, it's a very important term to know about aerospace engineering. So ISP is equal to thrust divided by the propellant mass flow rate. So it's a term that defines how efficiently your engine is using fuel mass to create thrust. The units work out to be in seconds. Liquid propellants are used for chemical propulsion, which in general has a low specific impulse, low when compared to electric propulsion, You can learn more about electric propulsion in episode 6. We go over some really cool stuff in that episode. Um, But chemical propulsion systems are limited to ISP values on the order of 500 seconds. Something really important to note about ISP is that ISP depends on the propellant, but a single value can't be assigned to any one propellant since specific impulse also depends on engine design. Yes. That is a great point.
1: So whenever you see a ISP value assigned to like a specific propellant, it tends to be a range or a about value.
0: Exactly. All right. So let's get into different types of fuel. So I'm going to talk about uh, three very popular ones. One is kerosene, also known as RP-1. RP-1 is a refined form of kerosene, and this is a type of petroleum fuel. What this means is that it is refined crude oil and it's a mixture of complex hydrocarbons, which basically means that it's composed of organic compounds that contain carbon and hydrogen atoms. RP1 is typically used with liquid oxygen as the oxidizer. RP1 is a non-hypergolic propellant and it generally provides a better specific impulse than hypergolic propellants but less specific impulse than liquid hydrogen, which I'll get into next. RP-1 is very common. It was used in the first stage boosters of the Atlas and Delta II launch vehicles and used in the first stage of the Saturn-1B and Saturn V rockets.
1: Everybody loves RP-1.
0: Yes, it is super popular. You'll hear RP-1 just said a lot in all sorts of like aerospace movies. You'll see it in articles so it's good to get become familiar with that one
1: what is that concept like once you learn a term you start to hear it everywhere and it's just because you start to pay attention to it
0: oh my so, gosh yes uh selective bias
1: yes but i think there's uh yes you went for the actual technical term but i think <laughs> there is another um i think there's like a ooh um, term here. for when you learn a word and see it everywhere okay let's see what you got google Oh, Bader Meinhoff phenomenon. Is that what
0: you were looking for? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. The Bader Meinhof phenomenon is the phenomenon, thank you, where something you recently learned suddenly appears everywhere. Also called frequency bias.
0: Yeah, it's also called selection bias. No, I think you are
1: absolutely correct. Yes. So now that you know what that means, you will according to Bader Meinhof, we'll see it everywhere. i love this. the official definition is they're like the beta minor phenomenon is the phenomenon i was like yeah yeah i got that part thanks Uh,
0: classic (laughs) the next fuel to talk about is liquid hydrogen liquid hydrogen is typically used with liquid oxygen uh, which is abbreviated as lo2 or lox as the oxidizer Liquid hydrogen is stored at very low temperatures. In order for it to take on liquid form, it must be stored at temperatures of minus 253 Celsius, or, which is minus 423 Fahrenheit. Liquid oxygen must be stored at minus uh, 183 degrees Celsius, which is minus 297 degrees Fahrenheit to stay in liquid form. These low temperatures define these liquids as cryogenic.
1: So if an engine uses both liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, because both of those are not liquid at room temperature, that would be referred to as a cryogenic engine. Correct. But if an engine uses liquid Mm -hmm. oxygen in RP1, that's technically not a cryogenic engine because RP1 um, kerosene is not, is liquid at room temperature.
0: Correct. A challenge with these cryo engines is the storage requirement. You have to have like active cooling and the, uh, the storage of this makes handling these types of fuels, the cryofuels, a lot more cumbersome. It's really tricky. On top of the low temperature, liquid hydrogen has a very low density, which means it requires a lot of space to store it. Why? Well, density is mass divided by volume. If it has a low density and you want a significant amount of it, you'll need a lot of space to support it. A perk about liquid hydrogen is that it typically provides a 30 to 40% higher specific impulse than most rocket fuels. The ISP specific impulse for liquid hydrogen can be around 380 seconds. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. LOX and liquid hydrogen were used in the upper stages of the Saturn V, and they were also used in the main engines of the space shuttle. And it's going to get into some really cool history. So we'll get some awesome examples then, too. I am. We actually have an episode about the Saturn V. It is episode 7, if you want to learn more about that. Yes, check it out. All right, on to the third fuel type, hydrazine. Hydrazine is awesome. It typically provides the best specific impulse for chemical rockets. However, it is a hypergolic fuel, which means that once it comes in contact with the oxidizer, it will combust. And on top of that, it is highly toxic, so it needs to be very carefully stored. But it doesn't need extremely cold temperatures to be stored as a liquid, like liquid hydrogen does. The oxidizer for a hypergolic hydrazine is typically nitrogen tetroxide, uh, abbreviated as NTO, or nitric acid, which are corrosive. A benefit of the immediate combusting nature of hypergolic fuels is that they can be used for systems that require a quick start or a quick reaction to situations, such as spacecraft maneuvering systems. Hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide were used in the maneuvering and reaction control systems of the space shuttle orbiter. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I thought so, too. All right. And the fuel source that is emerging in popularity that I mentioned earlier is liquid methane. So liquid. Yeah. So liquid methane as a rocket fuel has been gaining popularity in the aerospace industry. Currently, both Blue Origin and SpaceX have been investing in engine designs that are powered by burning liquid methane and liquid oxygen. That's cool hmm the perks of methane is that it burns a lot cleaner compared to compared to the other popular fuels that i mentioned it creates i wonder if
1: it's cheaper too
0: historically i do remember learning that the reason why we didn't invest in liquid uh methane earlier was we just had made all these manufacturing systems to support rp1 and liquid hydrogen that Investing that all these, you know, like engine companies did not want to redo all their manufacturing processes to support liquid methane, even though it had a lot of potential. Um, Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. I
1: never would have thought about that.
0: Yeah. I remember learning that a long time ago and I thought it was fascinating.
1: Yeah. And then, like, the amount of these propellants that you need is so huge that they make these entire setups to transport all the propellant and store it completely. So that's a lot of money to make a whole new one for a different
0: yeah. Like a lot of money like, and a lot of like what is time. the term? <laughs>
1: it is, I was like different and my brain was just like I don't know the next word, propellant. I'm having a rough day. <laughs>
0: You're fine, Anna. Yeah, like supporting these different propellants, um all the like storage infrastructure, also just like redesigning engines.
1: Yeah, is a lot.
0: It is. All right. Um A perk of methane is that it burns a lot cleaner compared to the other popular fuels that I just mentioned. It creates less carbon dioxide and less soot compared to these other fuels. Soot can collect on the internals of boosters and that can affect the lifespan of a booster. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So liquid methane burns very clean compared to um, these other fuels. And methane is easier to store than liquid hydrogen. It doesn't need as large of a tank and does not require active cooling to store. It's Uh, liquid at room temperature. Exactly. And another really cool part about methane is that we can actually generate it on Mars using the Sabatier reactor, which takes CO2 and hydrogen. And there's plenty of CO2 on Mars. And its byproducts are methane, CH4, and water. That's so cool. It is so cool. And we actually use the Sabatier reactor on the ISS. Wow. Yeah, which is awesome because Anne and I have talked about this plenty of times earlier in our earlier episodes, but it costs a lot of money and it just, uh, it costs a lot of money to carry fuel with you to for deep space travel.
1: The way I think about it is when you're backpacking, if you have to carry all of your water for your entire trip with you... It gets kind of heavy
0: and it's tiring. Yes. That is the perfect example.
1: Right. So like if you go backpacking and you can bring a water filter and you know somewhere where you can fill up your water, you can carry less at the beginning. And so you're going to waste less energy.
0: Exactly. So Anna, that is a great example.
1: Thank you. I just hate having to carry all my water with me (laughs) when I go backpacking. (laughs) And because I'm a paranoid person who's very worried about getting
0: thirsty, I always will bring way too much. (laughs) <gasps> but yeah, like Anna's completely right. The more mass you have to carry, the more energy you have to expend. So, in a rocket, like the more propellant you're carrying with you, the more energy, the more thrust you have to produce to be able to lift that mass with you.
1: Exactly. And then it gets into this circle like the more propellant you carry, the larger a rocket you need. Like the larger rocket you need, the more propellant you need. Exactly.
0: And the more expensive it gets, and the more yeah. time you need to design it so many factors so many that's so cool yeah um and the last fact i'm going to leave you with is that methane is more energy dense per unit mass than kerosene but less energy uh, per unit mass than hydrogen but sure the isp may be less than liquid hydrogen You have to think about the trade-offs here. The storage capabilities of hydrogen and the fact that it doesn't burn as clean as methane make it um, less appealing than methane. But yeah, Anna, that's all I have. I'm really excited to hear about the history of liquid propellants. I am excited to tell it to
1: you. But first, should we take a little break? Let's do it. Alright,
0: you ready to learn about the history of liquid propellants? I am so ready. Let's do this.
1: Alright, before I even get into the history, you cannot talk about the history of liquid rocket propellants without talking about the book Ignition! by John D. Clark. Have you read that book?
0: I have not,
1: but I have heard about it. It's an awesome book. It was originally published in 1972, but it was reprinted and re-released in 2018. It's a great book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm sure you're thinking, like, reading a book about the history of liquid rocket propellants sounds terribly boring. This book is a joy to read. It's written so interestingly and entertainingly. It doesn't feel like you're reading a history book. It's a great read.
0: Those are the absolute best. It's, and it's really hard to come by books like that where you learn a ton, but you're learning through like a little bit of comedy and a little bit of like more like layman's terms. Yes. It's written like you're listening to this man, John D. Clark,
1: tell you this story.
0: Yes. Storytelling. Which is just a far more interesting to me. It's really hard to come across nonfiction books that have a good storytelling voice behind them. Oof. Yeah. Some of them are
1: rough. But this one is really good. You can purchase it online, or you can borrow it from your local library. A lot of them are doing curbside pickup right now. Check if your local library is doing (laughs) that. Just a plug for your local
0: library. Heck yeah, I love it. I love my local library. (laughs) I do too.
1: As an interesting tidbit, I own this book. I opened it up and was skimming through it just to try to refresh myself. I forgot. The book has a foreword by Isaac Asimov, who is a friend of Clark's. Yes. If this name sounds familiar to you, Isaac Asimov... Mm -hmm is what could be considered one of the most famous science fiction authors ever.
0: Yeah. Oh, completely.
1: He has written an incredible number of science fiction books. And he's also... The Oxford English Dictionary credits him with creating the term robotics. No way. I did not know that. Which is really interesting because I was reading more about him on Wikipedia. And on Wikipedia, it was saying that he didn't want to take credit for creating the term robotics because he just felt like it was the natural progression of the word robot. So he didn't think he should get credit for that as a word. So humble. It made me kind of like him. I was like, oh, that's really nice. Ah, oh, that's awesome. I know. Seems like a cool guy from his Wikipedia profile. He's written an extraordinary number of books with one of the most popular being I, Robot. This was later adapted into a movie with Will Smith. And then this is where the three robot laws originate. These are really cool. I just keep saying really cool, but they're really interesting. I could go on about it. And for a second, I almost did in this episode, and I was like, that's not what this episode is about. Instead, I'll put a link to an article from Scientific American in the sources. I highly recommend Isaac Asimov and all of his body of work. But back to liquid rocket propellants, the reason we're all here, and our good friend Konstantin E. Solkovsky. You really can't get too far into rocketry without Solkovsky coming up. I'm not going to dive too deep into his life, because we actually already did an episode on him, as well as Goddard and Oberth. And that is episode 10, Fathers of Rocketry. So go check it out if you want to learn some more. Real quick summary. Solkovsky was born in 1857 in Russia. He went on to lead a very interesting life and made a bunch of cool discoveries. But I'm going to jump forward to 1903, when he published his most important paper, Exploration of Outer Space by Means of Rocket Devices. 1903 is the same year of the Wright brothers' first flight, so a lot was happening. But in this paper, Solkovsky derived the famous Solkovsky Equation. Which is also commonly referred to as the Rocket equation and is still heavily used and depended on today.
0: Yes. The Tsiolkovsky equation is one of the fundamental equations you learn in aerospace engineering.
1: It is a cornerstone of aerospace engineering.
0: Yes. It like goes beyond Newton's second law. Of motion because when you're looking at a rocket, you're looking at how the mass of the rocket is changing because you're expelling fuel. This ideal rocket equation basically takes into account like your fuel, the changing mass of the rocket, and the thrust, and it's a way of modeling a rocket.
1: Exactly. In this paper, he also goes on to discuss how space travel is possible, but only with the use of liquid propellants. He then proceeds to recommend liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And as you already heard, These are still some of the most popular rocket propellants, particularly with upper stages. And he wrote this 118 years ago.
0: That's wild.
1: Literally, I knew (laughs) that fact already, but I don't think I'd ever done the math. I was like, wait, is that
0: 118 years ago? Yeah, I think we talked about this also in that Fathers of Rocketry episode, and I remember... Thinking it was wild back then, and as you said it, it comes back to me, and I'm like, it's wild. That is
1: still one of the most commonly used combinations. It's impressive. And he figured that out 118 years ago. Yeah.
0: So, like, so cool. That was before Prohibition.
1: <laughs> Prohibition is clearly <laughs> one of the major markers I have in my head for a time.
0: Well, I think this is like the third episode Anna has brought this in as her historical footing note. <laughs> It's prohibition happened then. <laughs> Look, all this engineering we accomplished since then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're like it's one of the few things I know for certain. <laughs> so <laughs> I try my best. All right, that in and of itself is already impressive enough. However, something I forgot about until thumbing through ignition again was that liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen weren't officially discovered. I put "discovered" in quotes because I don't know if you can say they were discovered or created. Mm-hmm. However, I'm going with discovered until a few years before that. Liquid oxygen was discovered in 1883 by Z.F. Robluski and liquid hydrogen in 1898 by James Dewar. This is the same Dewar of the Dewar flask for all you chemists out there. Something else to note here. It was years after their first liquefaction. I don't know if that's a real word, but that's what I'm going with. It (laughs) It was years after they were first able to be turned into a liquid that scientists determined how to produce large quantities of them. By 1903, these were both very new things to even exist on the scene. Sokofsky went on to conceive many more concepts, which have been used in rocket designs, such as gas rudders and regen cooling. However, he never actually applied his research. He focused more in the theoretical domain. It wasn't until Robert Goddard that the liquid rocket engine became a reality. We also talked about him in our Fathers of Rocketry episode, if you want to go check it out. Another plug again. Goddard was born in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1882. He had a BS and an MA and a PhD all in physics and he started thinking about liquid rocket motors all the way back in at least 1909 when he came to the same conclusion as Sokofsky that liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen were the most optimal combination for liquid rocket engines. Something to note here. You're like, okay, 1909 is six years after Sokofsky published his paper. Why wouldn't Goddard know about it? Well, When Tsiolkovsky first published his paper, it did not receive really any recognition from the scientific community, which kind of makes sense. This is 1903. Mm -hmm. Space is kind of a crazy concept now. In 1903, a million times more so. This paper wasn't really taken that seriously. Also, the internet did not exist. Yes, I was waiting for you to get to that. (laughs) Yeah. So for a paper that was published in Russia to reach the US, it had to become incredibly famous. And at the time, Sokowski's paper was not. But clearly that has changed. It would make complete sense in 1909 that Goddard would never have seen his paper. Forging ahead. In 1922, while working as a physics professor at Clark University, Goddard started his first liquid rocket engine experiments. Now at this time, liquid hydrogen was really hard to come by. And it was really expensive. So instead, he used gasoline. In November of 1923, he successfully fired a rocket on a test stand. And on March 16th, 1926, Goddard successfully flew the first liquid rocket engine. The rocket flew 184 feet and had a total flight time of 2.5 seconds, but he proved it could be done.
0: That's amazing.
1: I know. I'm going to skip ahead here to Germany and World War II. If you're curious about what happened in between then, please go read Ignition. I'm going to mention this book a bunch of times through this. (laughs) But as a quick reminder, World War II was from 1939 to 1945. And I always have to re-put this in here, because I cannot remember, no matter how many times, I have looked this up. I know it's sometime in the 40s, but that's all I remember. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to do this, not just for you. Dates are hard. They're so hard. Mm -hmm. Germany had a large and active rocket development program, which started even before the war. Werner von Braun, we've actually spoken about him in previous episodes. Unfortunately, he was a self-proclaimed member of the Nazi party. And was brought over to the u.s after the war as part of something called project paperclip i think we touched on this in the saturn V episode if you want to learn more about it von braun was made the technical director of the program in 1937 and in 1942 the first v2 was produced the v2 also known as the a4 was the very first long-range guided ballistic missile its engine utilized liquid oxygen and a mixture of 70% alcohol and 30% water as a fuel. While this worked really well, liquid oxygen, as Henna has already mentioned, is not liquid at room temperature and cannot be easily stored. And the missiles would need to be fueled immediately before takeoff. So you couldn't fill them and just have them hanging out. You had to grab it, you had to fill it, and then you had to launch it.
0: Ugh, so complicated. It's a lot.
1: A lot of work, a lot of lost time. So this kicked off a lot of research into something called monopropellants. And ways to store liquid propellants for long periods of time. I'm not going to go into this here. I think we should do an entire dedicated episode to monopropellants. Hannah actually brought this up earlier. There is a form of hydrazine which needs an oxidizer. However, there is another form of hydrazine that is not and is very famously a monopropellant, which means you do not need an oxidizer. It is both the fuel and the oxidizer. But I think we should just do an entire episode dedicated to monopropellants. They're really interesting and trying to squeeze them in here, I think we would lose a lot of info.
0: Completely. I think that's a great idea, Anna. We should definitely do that. Agreed. But you already know (laughs) then.
1: I'm just going to skip over this whole period here. Again, please go read Ignition if you want to learn more about this. I'm giving you a very abbreviated history. I'm going to jump ahead to the early 1950s and kerosene. Woo! As I mentioned, the V-2 rockets used an alcohol-water mixture as fuel. This has a few advantages. First of all, the water content would provide cooling in large rocket engines and prevent overheating. However, it also burned really clean. If you've ever seen like an old school gas lamp, the glass enclosure gets covered in black stuff. Alcohol doesn't leave behind this silty byproduct after it's burned. However, it also can't produce nearly as much power or ISP as petroleum-based fuels like kerosene can. So in the 1950s, the United States chemical industry was tasked to solve this problem by developing a petroleum-based fuel that burned clean as well as ensuring the engines did not overheat. And now this led to the creation of RP-1 in 1954. Now, RP-1 literally stands for Rocket Propellant 1. Yes, I did not mention that earlier, Anna. Yes, that's right. It's something I know but tend to always forget because I always think it's something more complicated.
0: That's so true. Like, my brain immediately... We'll think about how it's like some complicated chemical name.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like methane is CH4. Yes. Uh, (laughs) This is just rocket propellant one. I love it. Yep. And as Hannah already mentioned, it's a highly refined form of kerosene. It has a much higher specific impulse than alcohol. And then again, remember specific impulse? Hannah described it above. Above, like above in my notes, (laughs) but you cannot see above.
0: I was just about to say, I'm like, Anna, where above? (laughs) Just look up.
1: (laughs) Earlier for you, above for me. (laughs) Please Uh, don't look up
0: while you're driving (laughs) and listening to us.
1: (laughs) More than anything, please do that. This is a measure of how efficiently a rocket uses propellant. RP-1 is also liquid and stable at room temperature, and it burns a lot cleaner than standard kerosene. All of these things have led to RP-1 being a very popular rocket engine propellant, particularly with first stages. Henna's already got into this, but it was used for the Rocketdyne F1, which powered the first stage of the Saturn V. SpaceX's Merlin engine used RP-1. Russia's RD-180, which powered the Atlas 3 and Atlas V, as well as countless other rocket engines, use RP-1. It's very popular. You might be wondering, why isn't liquid hydrogen used for everything? Well, Henna already touched on this. LH2 has a higher specific impulse than RP1, but in comparison it has a significantly lower density, meaning you need a way larger tank to store it. This can cause some serious problems with first stage rockets, which need a whole lot of propellant. However, it is ideal for second stages, or in some cases, single stage to orbits, or SSTOs, and that's where it tends to be commonly used today. Some examples of this include the Saturn V. The first stage uses RP1 in LOX, or liquid oxygen. It's L-O-X, so it's commonly referred to as LOX. And the second stage, and actually the third stage, so the S-2 and the S-4B, use the J-2 engine, which uses liquid hydrogen instead. And in a metric we talk about in the Saturn V episode, if they were to use liquid hydrogen for the first stage engine, that tank would needed to have been three times larger,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which would have just been astronomically huge. It would not have been feasible. Yeah. But again, Blue Origin's BE-3PM also uses liquid hydrogen and that powers their new Shepard rocket and the BE-3U, which will one day power the second stage of their new gun rocket. And that is your incredibly abridged history of liquid rocket propellants. I know I left a lot of stuff out. There was just so much that happened that picking out what to put in here was really difficult.
0: Oh my gosh, Anna, I feel you. I feel like Anna and I struggle with this with a lot of our episodes because there's so much good content and knowledge out there that we want to cover and research but uh, the episodes can get very 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 long if we were to do that so it's like how can we fit enough into a reasonably long episode
1: yes and i love that book ignition so much i wanted to just put all of the stuff from that book in this episode which is not feasible because that is a couple hundred page book
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. I felt the same way when we did our space hibernation episode, and I read this book, Fashioning Apollo, and it was all about... Or no, it was our spacesuits episode. Yeah. And I just, like, I was struggling so hard with what cool spacesuit information to leave out versus to keep because of this amazing book. So I totally get it.
1: So I left a lot of great stuff out. I know. I'm sorry. It hurt me too. But... I hope this gave you a good feel
0: for the development of rocket propellants. Liquid rocket propellants. Alright, Anna. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find us? Yeah, sure thing.
1: You can check us out on our website at But It Is Rocket Science. We actually have merch. If you want to check that out, we have coffee mugs and tote bags and t-shirts. Woo! Again, that is but it is rocket dot com. You can also learn a little bit more about us there and check out our contact us page if you want to shoot us a message. Shout out to Heidi, who sent us a really sweet message saying that she really enjoyed our episode about Pluto because she also agrees that all dwarf planets are planets. So
0: thanks to your note, Heidi. Yeah, thank you, Heidi. It made her day to read that. It did.
1: <laughs> we love your notes. Send them on over. Or if you have any topics you want us to cover in the future, let us know. And then you can check us out on Instagram at but it Is rocket science. You can check us out on Twitter at but it Is rs. And you can find us on Facebook at But It Is Rocket
0: Science. Want to do our sources? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so I have a few sources here. The first one are some lecture notes from a rocket propulsion class from MIT. Another one is a nasa.gov article I found on liquid rocket propellants. I'll have that linked in the sources. I also have a few Wikipedia pages on liquid rocket propellants and the SpaceX Raptor. I have another history.nasa.gov on liquid rocket propellants. And a paper from Elsevier, which is called Improving the Performance of LOX slash Kerosene Upper Stage Rocket Engines. And a website, www.braeunig.us, which is a website by an aerospace engineer. And then for the Sabatier reactor, I actually dug up some old school notes I took. That's awesome. Thanks, Anna. How about you?
1: All right. I have the Amazon listing for ignition and informal history of liquid rocket propellants. However, you also may be able to borrow it from your local library or your local bookstore. So I have the Wikipedia page for Isaac Asimov. I have that Scientific American article about the robot laws. I have a bunch of NASA websites about Konstantin Tsiolkovsky and Goddard. Some Wikipedia pages about the V-2 rocket and RP-1 and a comparison of orbital rocket engines. And I also had a Wikipedia page about the history of liquid propellants. Awesome. Let's close it out. Until next time, space cadets. T-minus T three, three,
0: two, one, liftoff! Lift off.